Well, we've reached the final conference of our retreat and the subject, Entering into Christ's Passion, the Mass as a Sacrifice. So, the Eucharist is a sacrifice. And this brings with it an implication not only for what we understand is happening at the Mass, but also what we are doing when we go to Mass. And here, Aquinas has some very rich theological resources that overflow, as it were, into a spirituality of the Eucharist. So we've talked about the Eucharist uh, as what it is in itself and what its fruits are, in, for example, in the reception of the Eucharist. And now we're talking really about how the Eucharist is celebrated or, or something pertaining to the Mass as the representation of the sacrifice of Christ or how to understand that and how to understand what we are doing when we go to Mass and unite ourselves to the sacrifice of Christ, unite ourselves to the action of the priest at the altar in offering the sacrifice. So I propose to ascend to the summit of this theme uh, progressively beginning by talking about sacrifice itself as an act of the virtue of religion. And the true interior act that gives the real value to sacrifice in the eyes of God. So the first three texts on your handout, if you have the handout handy for conference number seven, they deal with that issue. Uh, they're from the Secunda Secundae of Aquinas' Summa Theologiae in its treatment on the virtues of religion and, and the acts of the virtues of religion. The second set of texts and the second major part of this conference, retreat conference, is uh, they are taken from question 22 of the Tertiopars of the Summa, which comes from the section of the Summa dealing with the mystery of the Incarnation, so Christology, generally speaking, with Christ as God and man, the theology of Christ. And question 22 is specifically about Christ's priesthood, understood specifically as a relation of Christ to the Father. That's an interesting thing. Aquinas underlines that that Christ's priesthood pertains to his relation to the Father. So Jesus, of course, is not a priest as God. He is a priest as man. So he offers, as a priest, in his humanity, prayers and sacrifices to the Father. And this is foundational for what we understand is happening at the Eucharist, because when a Catholic priest celebrates Mass, he is acting in persona Christi. He's speaking the very words of Christ. He's offering as an instrument of Christ's person the very sacrifice of Christ to the Father. And that's central to our understanding of what's happening at the Mass. Then the final set of texts on the handout are taken from later in the Tertiopars of the Summa, where Aquinas speaks of the sacraments as deriving their power from Christ's passion, and then the final article on there 
is specifically about the Mass as the sacrifice of Christ. So this issue about whether the Mass, in what sense the Mass is a sacrifice, it's not really directly my aim to talk about that in great detail, because that's a very complicated and controverted question. Obviously, it was controverted by the Reformation, and, or, or disputed by, by reformers, and so then you have some developments after Aquinas in further elaborating exactly in what sense we speak about this. So Aquinas himself gives you, I think, the key principles, but he doesn't always draw all the conclusions, and that was left to later disputes, and the Council of Trent, for example, uh, has lots to say about that. We can talk about that a little bit if you want. But let's turn to the first theme of this conference, sacrifice as an act of the virtue of religion. So if you were to take a look at the first text on your handout, which is from question 85, article 1 of the Secunda Secundae, you'll see that there are two points that Aquinas is making there. The first has to do with the recognition that natural reason itself can arrive at that we are creatures subject to a higher being. Now, the way he frames this here is actually very generic because he's talking about religion as something that belongs as a certain way to justice as a kind of potentially even also a certain natural, in a certain natural sense that there can be a natural virtue of religion. Now, there's a lot of qualifications we'd need to add there we really wanted to talk about this. For pagans, of course, this higher being to which we are subject in some way remains shadowy and unclear exactly what we are orienting ourselves towards or what this higher superior being is. And in paganism, often there are higher beings which are considered part of the world, just a, a more noble part or a more powerful part than the part that we inhabit. Uh, Monsignor Robert Sokolowski has a wonderful book uh, called um, The God of Faith and Reason where he talks about what he labels the Judeo-Christian distinction. And Aquinas has certainly imbibed that distinction, and it works very powerfully against the notion of the pagan understanding of gods as the highest part of the universe. And this is, in fact, extremely important for a whole bunch of reasons to understand Aquinas on this point, not just with respect to the virtue of, of religion. I'm just mentioning it here because it happens to, to come up in this article. The Judeo-Christian distinction, and so therefore also Aquinas' way of thinking about this, Aquinas is not the only one to think this way, is to recognize that God is not a part of the cosmos, of the universe. He's not the most powerful part or the highest part. He is outside of the universe in a certain sense. That's not even right, the right metaphor. He is the transcendent cause of the universe. So he is radically unlike everything that is in the universe. 
he is not a part related to a whole. He is already the whole. And everything that we encounter in the universe is infinitely less than him. Even the whole universe is infinitely less than him. So that requires a radical shift in the way we understand the relation between creation and God the creator. Now Aquinas thinks that it's at least possible to arrive by natural reason at an understanding of God as the transcendent first principle and cause of all there is. And the five ways argue to just this kind of transcendent cause the cause of being itself. God who is, who is to be in a radically different way from the way everything else exists in a contingent way, in a finite way. God exists necessarily and absolutely. So why, why talk about this in respect to the virtue of religion? Well, what is the reason that Aquinas brings up here in this article? It's that human beings perceive in themselves that we are limited and that there is something above us. And so the virtue of religion begins with our recognition of our dependence as creatures on God. And if we have the right understanding of God, of course we will have an important first step towards recognizing what we owe to God as our creator. So for Aquinas, creation actually is not a moment in time or even a first moment. This is another kind of important corollary, not really the subject of of this retreat conference, but worth mentioning in passing. Creation isn't a moment, it expresses rather a relation. Now that's interesting and very helpful. It's a relation between God and the universe of radical dependence. That means that God doesn't create at one moment and then let the universe unfold as it will. God is always the creator at every moment upholding the contingent being that is the universe or that is in the universe which means that every moment we are radically dependent on God even for our very existence so when we recognize that we are creatures We're not just recognizing that somewhere in the distant mists of time, God started the world and therefore we owe something to him. That's not the idea. The idea is that God is the reason we are even right now. And to recognize, not just that we received something a long time ago, but that we are always indebted to him and subject to him rightly subject to him, not just like, oh, man, it's a bummer that I have to depend on, you know, like 
this power cord. I wish I had a battery that I could just carry with me all the time so I wouldn't need to be connected. The point is, you, there, there just is not going to be any being if God is not sustaining it in being. So we always are radically, radically subject to God and dependent on him. And it is therefore, it pertains in some measure to justice for us to recognize that relation. Now, as you go through and and think about religion as an, an act, something like justice, Aquinas doesn't think that it's that you can have a strict relation of justice with God. Why? Because if you were to talk about a strict relation of justice, consider like contract. I'm going to sell you a book. Maybe it's uh, Anne Scarbonier's um, A Key to the Doctrine of the Eucharist. And I give you a book and you give me $20 or whatever. If I give you a book, you owe me $20. But with God, so there's a kind of mutuality of the exchange. With God, he gives us everything. And we can't give him anything back that he doesn't already have. In fact, the universe doesn't add anything to God. It's rather the overflow of God's goodness that he would create even creatures who are not God to share in what he has in full. So in a certain sense, if you're trying to map this out according to an equation, God plus the universe is not greater than God, which is kind of mind-bending when you try to understand that, but it's giving you some understanding that the universe and God are not in the same category. So what is due in the virtue of religion is some acknowledgement and acting upon our status as creatures. But we can never give enough because we can never fully repay God for all that we have received from him. Now, another corollary of this is that our worship doesn't actually succeed in giving anything to God. It doesn't make God any better off. So any obligation imposed on us in a certain sense to worship is not for the sake of God. What is it for the sake of? I mean, it's for the sake of God in in one sense, but in another sense, it's for our good. That expresses something very profound. We will not be able to be rightly ordered to God unless we worship him. And that doesn't injure God when we're disordered from him. It injures us. So when God teaches us how to worship him, when he commands that worship, when he institutes sacrifices and rites of worship, he's not doing it because he's trying to get something from us. He's doing it because he's trying to help us 
acknowledge who we really are in relation to him. And to be in right relation with him is going to be the only way in the end that we will share in his, in his goodness. So God is doing us a huge favor by teaching us how to worship him. And by, in fact, by granting us grace to carry out those acts of worship. It permits us to, now here's a crazy sounding thing, but Aquinas holds it. It permits us to possess God and enjoy God in himself. Sounds almost like we're objectifying God. That's not what Aquinas means, of course. Well, in a certain sense, as Dr. Hutcher talked about, God is the object of the theological virtues. Maybe we are, but not objectifying in the way that our contemporary language would would refer to it. This is, in fact, our divinization as we are able to possess and enjoy God. Well, this might lead to the question, how is worship or the virtue of religion offering sacrifice, for example, how is that different from or the same as the theological virtues? And here Aquinas has some interesting reflections which I, uh, were too extended for me to, to um, get into in the, the excerpts or to provide excerpts for. But the virtue of religion, Aquinas says, has as its object what it's aiming at in that act, what is being offered to God, namely worship. So if you ask what is the object of the virtue of religion, the answer is the worship owed to God or giving what is due to God insofar as that's possible for us. And that's a different object than the theological virtues. The theological virtues attain to God himself. The thing aimed at, as it were, when you make an act of charity is not giving what is due to God, but simply loving God above all things. So the virtues... The theological virtues have God as a kind of direct object of their act. So the virtue of religion, offering worship to God, is not itself a theological virtue, but it is moved by a theological virtue, Aquinas thinks. So when we have faith and charity, those virtues will move us to acts of worship, which is rendering what is due to God. So, of course, these things then are are cohering, but they are not just simply understood to be the same. Now, what is the way human beings should worship God? And that's the second point that Aquinas makes in that first, first text and also uh, the second text on your, on your handout, on, also on page one, so from question 81, article seven. The mode of worship that befits a rational animal. And it's specifically that we use external and sensible things to signify our subjection to God. 
in our offering of honor and worship to him. That should make you think already of the sacraments in a certain way. These are visible exterior things that signify what? Our subjection, our worship, our adoration. And Aquinas, in the second article that you've got on your handout there, explains that this is a facet of our existence as material creatures. It's an aspect of our animality, actually, that we would offer something visibly to God. Angels don't worship with visible sacrifices, as we do. The general principle here is that the sensible is a sign of the invisible. And even in the way we come to know the truth as animals, rational animals, it's the senses that lead us to invisible truths. We start with our sense knowledge, and then we have to work to arrive at some higher, immaterial form of knowledge. So it's natural for us, as embodied spirits, to use external things as signs of spiritual things. The goal, of course, is not just the material things. The material things are the means that we, as embodied creatures, need to use so that we can engage in those immaterial acts. So once again, Aquinas doesn't have a dualism where you have material things over here and spiritual things over here and they just happen to coincide. They are ordered to each other so that you use the material things in order to make a spiritual act. The material offering, the visible offering, has a kind of interior spiritual dimension to it. So both of those things are, are needed for us as embodied creatures. We need to use something exterior, but that alone is not enough. It needs to be imbued with a soul, as it were, the soul of worship, which is not just the giving of an exterior thing. So, in other words, there is a quasi-sacramental or quasi-incarnational mode of worship that is already natural to human beings. And so it should normally belong to any human form of worship. That's the kind of implication of Aquinas' text that you've got on the handout there. It's a strong contrast with Gnostic forms of religion where true religion is escaping the material and being purely immaterial. Aquinas would attack that on purely natural grounds in a way, like that's just misunderstanding creation, even before it's misunderstanding something about God. It's misunderstanding the kind of creatures that we are. It also could become a critique of forms of Buddhism, perhaps, or even certain forms of Protestantism that are strongly iconoclastic or 
really don't want to involve any, any material act in human worship. Aquinas thinks that that actually pertains to the kind of creatures we are. And of course, he, this is taken up when he discusses the incarnation. So God becomes man and therefore, in a way, establishes the, the archetype for our offering to God, which is precisely in an incarnate way. But interestingly, in these articles, he doesn't mention the incarnation. He's just talking about what kind of creatures we are. So what do you find in... Um, The next article, so this is question 85, article 2, the third article on, so it's the, the first full article on page 2 of the handout. You find Aquinas explaining what is that inward spiritual act. He says a sacrifice is offered in order that something may be represented. Now, the sacrifice that is offered outwardly represents the inward spiritual sacrifice whereby the soul offers itself to God. According to Psalm 50, 19, in some Bibles it's numbered number 51, a sacrifice to God is an afflicted spirit. Or if you listen, listen to the whole passage that Aquinas is referring to from the Psalms, often Aquinas in the Summa, I mean, this is a medieval uh, way of, of indicating a scripture citation, you just give a very short clip of, of words, but the author may very well have in, in mind a longer passage that he's not necessarily going to quote, not going to quote five lines of scripture. He's just going to refer you to it because they're writing in abbreviated ways. The longer passage there is, O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth shall proclaim your praise. For in sacrifice you take no delight, Burnt offering from me you would, you would refuse. My sacrifice to God is a contrite spirit. A humbled, contrite heart, O God, you will not spurn. So this psalm of David is expressing the contrition of David after his adultery with Bathsheba that sacrifice alone is not going to do it. There needs to be the act of a humble, contrite heart the interior act of love or devotion, which is, in a way, the soul of the sacrifice. So what God, above all, is seeking from us is not the external offering, which, of course, he does not need. It is precisely charity that is pleasing to God when we offer a sacrifice. So, the external act is supposed to be arousing and signifying our interior act of devotion and charity towards God, which is, of course, to say that we are ordering our will and therefore our whole lives to God and all of our other loves under God. And this sacrifice is supposed to be expressing that spiritual orientation towards God. A very important consequence of this, then, is that sacrifice for Aquinas is first and foremost something positive. 
It's the acknowledgement of God and our self-offering to God and not, first and foremost, a reparation for sin or something like that. It is that too, of course. But the idea of a sacrifice pertains to the positive, complete consecration to God. So the love of God and devotion to God precede the offering and are the context for the offering. They are the interior part of the offering, while the exterior sacrifice is an embodied expression and symbol that concretizes that interior act. So it's like a sign and an instrument. Okay, so that's Aquinas' theology of sacrifice, you might say, as an act of religion. And we haven't yet started talking about uh, the sacrifice of Christ or the sacrifice of the Mass, the, sacri- the Christian sacrifice. He will apply this notion of sacrifice, of course, to the Old Testament sacrifices as well. So it has a wider range of, of material to cover, this general notion of sacrifice. So now let's move on to what is really the second uh, major point, Christ's priesthood. Now when we look at question 22 in the Tertiary Pars, dealing with Christ's priesthood, Aquinas' central point is that this is Christ's relation to the Father, and specifically as man. So he's priest as man. Further, it's very important, I mean Aquinas doesn't even talk about this in great length because he thinks it's so obvious, I think. Jesus is the whole fountainhood of the priesthood. He is the fullness of the priesthood. Now, in the order of time, of course, there are Levitical priests in the Old Testament. We can find other instances of the priesthood that antedate Christ in time. But Christian theology understands them to be foreshadowings of the true priesthood of Christ and therefore pointing towards him. So when you want to understand what a priest truly is in the highest sense, you look at Christ and his priesthood, which is the fullness of the priesthood and also in a certain sense the origin of every other uh, priesthood. It's certainly the origin of all forms of priesthood that we have in the Catholic Church. So very explicitly, a Catholic priest is a priest in virtue of the priesthood of Christ. He shares the priesthood of Christ by his ordination in a secondary way. What Christ has in himself, the, the, the uh, merely human priest has, by way of conformity to Christ. So Jesus has a human nature joined to himself. So as man, he is a priest. His humanity is an instrument of his divinity. It's joined to his very person. Other priests are priests that are not joined to Christ in person. And so they operate with a kind of more distant instrumental causality. Okay, so that's a kind of fundamental Uh, principle for understanding what's happening at the Mass. A Catholic priest is not acting in his own name. 
And actually, this is very interesting just if you were to study the, the language of the Mass, if you were to do a kind of um, uh, linguistic or semantic analysis of the Mass. Who is the priest speaking to? Well, sometimes he's speaking to the people, it seems. But when you get to the Eucharistic prayer, he's speaking to the Father. And that's very clearly at the beginning of the Roman canon, for example, the first Eucharistic prayer. That's the, the classic ancient text for the Latin rite. To you, therefore, most merciful Father, we offer, offer humble prayer and petition. So the priest is speaking in persona Christi to the Father on behalf of the people. And then at the climax of the Eucharistic prayer, when you reach the words of consecration, the priest now begins to quote Jesus. It's very interesting that the Mass does not have the priest say, the night before he died, Jesus gathered his apostles around him and he took bread and, you know, he took bread and giving thanks said uh, to his disciples that this was his body. It gives you actually a quotation of the words of Christ. So it's not just recalling a fact that happened in the past, but the priest pronounces the very words of Christ himself, spoken in the first person. The idea there, of course, is that the priest is lending his voice as an instrument to Christ so that the actor in that moment is not simply the human priest who's standing at the altar, but also and principally Christ himself who acts through the priest as his instrument so that the sacrifice is being offered by Christ himself. We'll return to this point when we talk about the Mass as a sacrifice. What about Christ's priesthood? So coming back to Aquinas' text here, question 22, article 1. Is it fitting that Christ should be a priest? The central function or office that Aquinas identifies for the priesthood in the very first line here of this article is to be a mediator. The office proper to a priest is to be a mediator between God and the people. To wit, inasmuch as he bestows divine things on the people, And again, for as much he offers up the people's prayers to God and in a manner makes satisfaction to God for their sins. So you can describe this, and, and uh, later commentators will describe it, in a twofold way. A mediator is between, right? Between God and the people. So Christ, as the God man, is the perfect mediator. But he's a priest as man. So he stands not just between God and humanity, because he's standing there as man, as priest, 
God and the people. And he mediates both in an upward direction, an ascending mediation, and in a downward direction, a descending mediation. So descending, he gives gifts to the people. That's the first thing Aquinas mentions. And those are specifically divine teaching and grace, gifts of grace. And then he offers up to God the prayers and sacrifices of the people. So that's the ascending mediation. So it's a part of the priestly office of Christ to teach us the truth about God and also to give grace to us. And this is, in a sense, even before we get to the offering of a sacrifice. So the incarnation itself, Aquinas describes as already, in a certain way, communicating grace to the world, even before you reach the culminating moment of Christ's passion. But through that passion, Christ is offering something to the Father on our behalf. And he's offering something that reconciles us to to the Father. So Christ offers sacrifice. That's the next text that I've given you. Whether Christ was himself both priest and victim. And of course, Aquinas answers, following Augustine, yes, he's both. It raises the question, what exactly, and this, this comes up in this article, in, uh, the, especially in the replies to the objections about being a priest, is it required of the priest that the priest kill the victim? It seems that in the Old Testament sacrifices, that was the function of the priest. Well, actually, as we were talking about in the first talk, that the principal prototypical function of the priest is actually the offering of the blood, which is the life. So you see already there, there might be a way forward for us to understand what is really the true nature of the priestly sacrifice. Is it death, conveying death, or is it rather the offering of what is what has been received from God, that is the life, which is a, a different way of looking at things, and I think an important difference. Because it raises the question about what is happening in the sacrifice of Christ. Now this is a very deep question, and probably one that I shouldn't try and say too much about in a you know in a glib way since we only have a moment here to talk about it. Is it the death of Jesus that is pleasing to the Father? Is that what he is offering the Father? Death to kill himself? That's not Aquinas' understanding. It's not the death per se, death in itself, that is pleasing in Christ's sacrifice. If you know something about Aquinas' theology of sacrifice, as now you do, you should 
immediately be able to see what is really pleasing in the sacrifice is the interior act of the offerer that is being concretized in this exterior act. So insofar as Jesus is a man, it is right for him not to offer just a purely invisible offering, but a very concrete offering. And that very concrete offering of his whole self is made visible in the passion which he accepts. Now, the point that Aquinas makes in replying to the objections in this article, question 22, article 2, are about whether Jesus killed himself. And Aquinas says, no, he didn't kill himself. It was his persecutors who killed him, and they committed a very grave sin in doing so. What did Jesus do? He allowed himself to be killed. He subjected himself to the malicious will of those who were killing him. So he didn't defend himself, and he allowed himself to be killed. He allowed himself to be killed precisely out of this complete offering to God, which is different from directly killing yourself or directly willing death or being pleased with the fact of death. So how then does Christ's offering, his sacrifice, satisfy for sins? Here, Aquinas' analysis, as I understand it, emphasizes not that the death itself was pleasing to God and placated God's anger. You know, he was angry and he just needed to, he needed to smite someone and he let the full wrath of his anger fall on Christ and therefore then God is somehow placated or pleased because he has punished someone. That is not Aquinas' way of thinking about it, but rather that what is ultimately happening in Christ's sacrifice is the offering of a perfect love to God. So when he analyzes Christ's satisfaction for us, he says, what is satisfaction? When you offer to someone who is offended something that he loves more, that he loves equally or more than what he hates in the offense. So you offer satisfaction, you offer something that will please the offended person equally or more than the offense. What does God hate in our sins? He hates, in a way, the turning away of our wills from God. He doesn't just hate the physical consequences of our sins. He principally hates that we have deprived ourselves of him. And so satisfaction is offered to God when Christ not only fills up the privation that human sin has caused in the world, turning away from God, Jesus fills that up by assuming human nature 
and then as man, making a perfect act of love to God, an infinite act of love. And in fact, Christ even does more than that. He overfills man, you might say, with that supernatural love so that there is something more lovable in man after Christ's passion than there was a privation in man before it. So in this way, Jesus really is undoing the work of sin. And the real damage of sin is that human wills are turned away from God. So Jesus assumes a humanity with a complete human will and and offers everything to God. Now the exterior concretization and signification of that is most fully visible in the passion. And so that is where you have the overflow, the perfect the perfect consummation of the perfectly innocent man who loves God absolutely. And this is how Christ is repaying God for sin. He's not giving him something that God didn't already have. And it's not the fact that Jesus is suffering qua physical pain. What is most valuable there is the love which accepts the physical suffering out of uh, as a, as the the ultimate sign of what an innocent man suffers at the hands of sinners. So it's in a way the the most perfect crystallization of what sin is that they want to kill the innocent and the most perfect crystallization of the remedy for sin which is the perfect love of Christ. And this is the essence of the sacrifice that Jesus is offering. And therefore also the essence of what is being given to us in the Eucharist and that we are being given a share in as we offer the Mass. So now let's move to the question of whether the Eucharist is a sacrifice or how that works. This is the last text, question 83, article 1. Whether Christ is sacrificed in the celebration of the Mass. Now the key theological points here are that according to Hebrews 10, there is only one sacrifice. Christ's sacrifice is not repeated. It is the perfect sacrifice. And the heavenly Christ has opened the way into the sanctuary for us by entering with his own blood. And we have been sanctified by Christ's single offering. So that, in a way, is the context for all of our reflection on the Mass as a sacrifice or the Eucharist as a sacrifice. We must absolutely affirm that there is only one sacrifice, so the Mass is not another sacrifice. How do we then understand the Mass as a sacrifice? If you look at Aquinas' article here, 
He says that the celebration, this is about five lines in, the celebration of this sacrament is an image representing Christ's passion, which is his true sacrifice. Accordingly, the celebration of this sacrament is called Christ's sacrifice. And he has a quote from Ambrose. And then he goes on and says, secondly, it is called a sacrifice in respect of the effect of his passion, because to wit, by the sacrament, we are made partakers of the fruit of our Lord's passion. Now, that might seem like a rather thin explanation of the Mass as a sacrifice, but you have to really understand what Aquinas means by saying these things, and the things that he means are actually very dense, very thick. What is a representation or a sign for Aquinas? Is it just like, oh yeah, you know, there's a sign over there, no big deal. Well, the whole thing that we've been talking about through a number of these conferences is that when Aquinas is talking about the sacraments, the signs are not just superficial things or arbitrary things. How do the signs function in the sacramental economy? They signify and therefore cause what they signify. So when Aquinas is talking about the rite of the Mass as signifying the passion of Christ, he does not mean that they are some kind of just weak echo, but that in some way, the very substance of what was done in Christ's sacrifice is being effected there. Or as Cajetan will later speak about it, you have the operative, or sorry, not Cajetan Journey, you have the operative presence of the passion of Christ. Now, Thomists have gotten in lots of arguments among themselves and with others lots of different theological schools trying to analyze later, after Aquinas, precisely how to understand the Mass as a sacrifice. Some will say, well, you know, Jesus, is Jesus suffering now when you offer the Mass? Is he crucified in the Mass? Well, there it requires some distinctions. Because the passion of Christ was a historical moment, and that historical moment is now past. Unlike modern science fiction writers, Aquinas does not think that the past still exists somewhere, and that if you could find the wormhole through time, you would be able to go back and see yourself as a child or something like that. He thinks that's metaphysically impossible. The past is no longer so the actual suffering of Christ now is in the past. Is Jesus in heaven at the right hand of the Father suffering on the cross? No, he's not suffering. He's glorified. So when Christ's body is present on the altar under the appearances of bread and wine, you have the glorified Christ who's present, not the suffering Christ. Now, it's true that Christ remains in heaven with his glorified wounds as it were bringing his blood into the heavenly sanctuary. 
So perhaps there we find the the essence of Christ's offering eternally present in heaven. But I think we could also say that in a certain sense, because the Mass is representing Christ's passion and applying the fruits of the passion to us individually, it is in a very real sense making the passion present again. Not present in its historical detail, not present in its historical actuality, but present insofar as it continues to reverberate through time and is directly applied to us. When Cardinal Cajetan addresses the question of how the Mass is a sacrifice, he says we must remember the Last Supper. So at the Last Supper, what did Jesus do? He gathered his apostles. He had not yet suffered, but the the movement towards his passion was already begun. And he offered himself under the forms of bread and wine to his apostles as the sacrifice or as the sacrificial, the partaking in the sacrifice that he was soon to accomplish on the cross. If the Last Supper can be understood as an aspect or a part, actually, in fact, intrinsically the same sacrifice as Christ's sacrifice on the cross, then it should also be possible for our entering into that moment of the Last Supper, after all, Jesus said, do this in memory of me, and that is very directly what is happening in the Mass, then the Mass also is a sacrifice in the same way that the Last Supper was a sacrifice. So that the Mass's participation or representation of that sacrifice is via the sacrifice offered by Christ at the Last Supper. The interior of which, of course, is Christ's act of supreme charity and complete offering of himself. So maybe some concluding words about how we can offer the sacrifice of the Mass or the sacrifice of Christ when we attend Mass. The priest, of course, is speaking to the Father, but he's speaking on behalf of you. So the priest is also speaking, in a way, your words. You, too, have a share in the priesthood of Christ. Not the ministerial priesthood, of course. It's a priesthood in a different way. But it is a very real share in Christ's priesthood. And you have that in virtue of your baptism. What does baptism accomplish in you? It configures you for a Christian form of worship. You are capable of offering Christ's sacrifice in communion with him as moved by faith and charity. So this is what you are supposed to be doing in Mass. Now, you don't offer 
in the same way that Christ offered it as, as the principal priest. But you are uniting yourself to that offering that Christ makes to the Father. This is why just listening to the words of the Eucharistic prayer, paying attention to them and intentionally making them your own is a very powerful participation in the Mass. It's your proper participation. And likewise, placing your very life on the altar with the gifts of bread and wine as they are brought forward is a very important spiritual act to make. Even though you may not bring the gifts up, you should be bringing yourself to the altar. And even more, when you find in your life that you have particular trials or difficulties, sufferings, to bring those to the Mass and to spiritually place them on the altar is a very profound spiritual act. You are uniting then your sufferings, your trials, with the suffering of Christ. And the overflow of his charity then can give a totally new orientation to whatever you are suffering and make it the exterior expression by which you are being conformed by God's grace to Christ in his suffering, but also in, of course, his glorification, his resurrection, and and eternal life. There's a beautiful image uh, that perhaps some of you have seen, painted by Fra Angelico, of St. Dominic at the foot of the cross. How many of you have have seen this? Do you know what I'm talking about? I can maybe send an image around to the the group. This is painted in the Prior of San Marco, where St. Dominic is kneeling at the foot of the cross and grasping the cross, which is, I mean, it's, it's a full-size cross. Jesus is there, painted life-size. And Jesus is, uh, his eyes are looking down at St. Dominic, mostly closed, but you get the sense that perhaps they're just slightly open. And the blood from Christ's wounds is running down the cross, And St. Dominic has his his hands gripping the cross next to the streams of of blood. And the expression on St. Dominic's face is one of the great artistic moments of genius, I think, for Fra Angelico, to see how he was able to to paint the the devotion, both the, the sorrow, but also the love on the face of St. Dominic. This is a wonderful icon, at least for, for my imagination, for what we are doing at Mass. We are going to the foot of the cross. Christ is really present in the sacrifice that he offered to the Father in the Mass. He's present in a different mode then he was present on the cross. It's not a bloody mode. It's, it's under the mode of this sacramental species. But it really is him there. And we can grasp onto that cross and hold onto it. And especially in moments of great trial, it seems to me that is one of the most powerful things that we can do. That is the true anchor that is going to keep us firmly attached to God. 
So I hope that somehow this retreat, this intellectual retreat, will help you make just that kind of act to place the Eucharist at the center of your spiritual life, and that it will bear great fruit in your lives as it has in the lives of St. Thomas Aquinas and St. Dominic and all the other great saints uh, of the Church. May we constantly perceive, as the, the prayer goes at the beginning of the Divine Office, may we constantly perceive in ourselves the effects of Christ's redemption. So, thank you very much.